Our scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 47. It's on page 852 through 853 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Hear now God's word. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour... Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down, come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Verse 40, there were were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, And summoned the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Please join with me as we pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you so much. We thank you for your sacrifice that you gave to us, that you gave for us, that you who were sinless should step down from majesty and take on humanity, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you were bruised for us, that you took our stripes, Father, 
that through you, we are healed. Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you became the perfect sacrifice, that you were the Lamb of God. Lord, we praise you, and in thanksgiving, we thank you for the victory that you have over death, that you didn't just stay dead, but that you rose again, that we have hope, that we have courage through that, Lord. We thank you for, in the story, we think of Nicodemus and the courage that you gave to him. You told him in John chapter 3, in John 3.16, that you so loved the world that you gave yourself, Lord, and you told him that he must be born again. And Lord, we thank you that in this passage that Nicodemus somehow gained courage to call you his friend, Father, and and that somehow through your power that um, it seems that he wanted to know you, that he wanted to know more about your strength and your power, that there was more to the scripture than just the dead, seemingly dead words of the Old Testament, Lord, but that it was alive, that he had just witnessed the word of God slain. So, Lord God, we thank you again for what you've done for us. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this wonderful body of believers, Lord. We pray for our pastor, Cody Carnett, as he comes up and speaks to us, Lord, that you would give him the words to say through your spirit and uh, strengthen us in your word. So, Lord, again, we thank you for this time. Be with us now as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we have just sung of some of the greatest truths of all of history. And there are many others. There's a red book in front of you called a hymnal. And that hymnal is full of deep and rich theological truths that expound upon what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You can think of some of the great old hymns of the faith. And I have uh, become increasingly convinced that I'm more out of touch with the new songs and much more in touch with the old songs. So maybe you don't recognize some of these, but blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine at the cross, at the cross where my burden rolled away. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior stricken, smitten and afflicted. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Calvary covered it all. Song after song after song written for centuries to strengthen the church of the implications of what was just read for us in Mark 15. The death and burial and soon to come in Mark, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet we find none of the glorious truths that we have just sung about teased out in this account but what we do have for us as was wonderfully prayed is we see here this morning the profound love of all eternity at the cross of Christ John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son And it's not some uh, feeling that he had, as we oftentimes think of love. It's not some impression or flame. She walked through the room and the lights flickered. 
No, this was a divine act of sacrificial giving. Of God giving his son. Christ in this passage here showing us that he lovingly laid down his life to save sinners. Lovingly laid down his life to save sinners. And we thank God that he did so. Because if you were to take the time this morning to turn all the way to the left of your Bible to Genesis. You will find in Genesis there sin comes into the world. And in fact the curse of sin is death. And yet, even amidst that curse, we see the hope of what we see here in Mark, because Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning Adam and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's he? His heel. That's Satan, the enemy. The king of darkness, the prince of darkness, the desire he has to pull sinners into hell. And we thank God that the sin of Adam in Genesis is not the final chapter for us as sinners. We approach this passage here in Mark 15, 21 through 47. And it's a longer passage. We really could probably take three or four weeks. Maybe one day we'll do so. But I, I want to divide it simply. We won't necessarily go verse by verse as much as we'll follow the story. So we'll look at his death and then we'll take some time to observe the witnesses that were there and then ask how shall we respond. Let's look first at verse 21 through 25, that fact that Christ is crucified. Now the story goes from verse 21 through 25. If you're looking at your Bible, you'll also see that it picks up again on 33 and 34. There's a bit of a segue there again and then it picks up Again at 37 through 38. So we'll sort of smash those verses together. And look at them more closely. I want to just draw your attention. If you're looking at your Bible. To the word and. The word and. 18 out of 27 of these verses. Begin with and. You'll see that right away. Verse 21 and they compelled. 22 and they brought. 23 and. Mark's account here is. Closely resembling. What a lawyer would do before a jury. He's simply standing in front of us. And delivering the facts. No commentary. Just what happened. And that word and is just simply meaning he's giving information and more information. And more information and more information. Until all of the account is told as it happened. If you take all of the remaining part of your New Testament Bible, anything to the right, really you could say that the rest of the New Testament Bible outside of the Gospels is commentary on what is happening here in Mark 15, 21 through 47. And so Mark is simply presenting us with the facts to force us to reckon with, do we believe that what is happening here actually took place? Or is it just a story? In fact, we could say that all the Bible to your left, the Old Testament, that points toward in many ways what's happening here in Mark 15, and all the Bible to your right that basically commentates on what's happening here, all of it's a moot point to everyone here if you do not believe that what happened in Mark 15, 21 through 47 really happened. Because we're at the pivotal point of all of history. 
You're either on one side that says, yeah, that's a pretty good wives' tale, a good legacy, a neat story, made a great movie, or you're on the other side and your life is changed because you believe it. All of Mark since verse 1, the quote, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been organized to simply give us the facts. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, forcing us to say, this is the Son of God, this is what he's going to do. He came, going to suffer, going to die, hung on a cross, will rise again. Do you believe it? That's all that Mark's presenting us with. Indeed, all of history has been waiting for this event. Look at verse 21. He has been beaten He has been mocked. He's had a great loss of blood. He's tremendously weak. And now the walk from his trial before Pilate to Golgotha, the place of the skull where he would be crucified. And they compelled a passerby, verse 21, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. The father of Alexander and Rufus. We don't know much more about this man than that. Mark mentioning Alexander and Rufus seems to indicate that the early church knew who these men were. Maybe believers already. But this man coming to Jerusalem is compelled, forced, is another word, to carry the cross. He didn't carry the whole thing. Typically they would only carry the cross beam. But it was rough and it weighed somewhere approximately 100 pounds. Heavy enough for most men much less a man who had had a great loss of blood from the whipping and the scourge that he had. They would strap it to his shoulders and he carried it in the place of Christ. They take him to this place, Golgotha, verse 23, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. That was, a, that was an anesthetic. It would numb the pain. Even the, the Romans recognized, though they had come up with this cruel way of killing someone, they recognized that it was beyond excruciating. And thus they would numb the pain just a bit. And yet Christ doesn't take any of it. His life's work was not going to be concluded until he actually drew his last breath. And you're thinking, you're in the last six hours. For goodness sake, take take an Advil. But his work wasn't done. Think of a couple of things that happened just in these six hours that are foundational, encouraging moments for us. He has this interaction with the robbers and one comes into paradise by Christ's admonition through his time on the cross. If he had been out of his mind, think of a morphine drip, can't think clearly, wouldn't have happened. He he gives responsibility for his mother Mary while he's hanging on the cross. He cries out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do while he's on the cross. For a culture that says, pack it in at 65, you know, move to Florida, relax. Christ takes his work all the way to the last breath. And verse 24, three words, four words, and they crucified him. Almost seems a disservice for all that that stands for. Spikes, not through the hands as you would typically see, maybe in a depiction, but through the wrists. A spike through the ankles, 
a little platform for someone to stand on to just prolong the pain as long as possible. You died of asphyxiation. You suffocated. Not because you couldn't get air in, but because you couldn't get air out. The term excruciating comes from crucifixion. There's no other way to describe the pain that was there. Crucifixion was regarded as the lowest form of degradation. There was no more humble way to die. Even the Romans wouldn't crucify another Roman. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It was nine o'clock in the morning. He would have six hours to go before his death at 3 p.m. Jump with me to verse 33. As we continue this story of what happens to Christ, it's now three hours later. It's the 12 12 o'clock high noon. The sixth hour had come. And there was darkness over the whole land for the next three hours. Now, presumably that darkness was local, but it was more than just a solar eclipse as we, some of us may see tomorrow. It wasn't a shading. It wasn't, a, you know, the clouds seemed to be a little more thick today. It was tangible darkness. In fact, the Bible uses darkness to really display A symbol of God's judgment. Think about all the way to Exodus chapter 10. The ninth plague. The plague of darkness. What follows immediately the ninth plague is the tenth. The tenth is the killing of the firstborn. And that's what you have here. You have darkness preceding the lamb being slain on the cross. The firstborn. The son of God. The weight of the sin of the world here resting on the shoulders of Christ. So vile and evil and dark is that sin, that physical darkness symbolized the spiritual reality. God here withdrawing his love and dealing only with his son in wrath in place of me. And in place of you. Notice verse 34. Three hours later. Mark just giving us the facts. Not filling in a lot of the other details. That the other gospels give. 3 p.m. The ninth hour. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Aloy, aloy, lama sabachthani. Which means my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice he doesn't say, like he said in the garden, Abba, Father, but God. Using Aramaic, everyday language from him. Christ knew his Bible. Quotes directly from Psalm 22, verse 1. The agony of the suffering of Christ here. Coming out in just a simple cry of of pain and yet unbelievable agony and suffering. If there's anyone who understands suffering, most people would say, God is love. Why would he allow suffering? Does he really, if there's anyone who understands suffering, it is God. Because the son of God 
is taking the greatest suffering of the world. The God who hung on a cross for sinners. The God who is forsaking God. And so the essential issue for us in our sin this morning is not, what does our sin do to other people? How does my sin affect me? Because you may begin here thinking, yeah, I know, I made some mistakes, I've sinned, but really, what's the big deal? My life might be enjoyable, more enjoyable because of my sin than less. My sin helps numb my pain. What's wrong with a little sin? And yet our sin has to do, we we have to reconcile not what our sin does to me and what it does to each other, but what does our sin do before God? And what it requires is that God forsakes sinners in judgment. Hell is not an absence of God, as if God's in heaven and he's not in hell. No, God is there, but it's not his love that is there. It's not his mercy. It's not his patience or kindness. It's his wrath. Not impeded by that love. And so at the cross what we see is God's love for sinners. And yet it's also teeing up with his wrath. And that's the place where we have to look and say. There's a time now when I can respond to that love being reconciled with wrath. And there's also a time coming when that love is removed and there's only wrath. And for the believer there's a time coming And is even now when that wrath has been removed by that love because of belief in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ bearing the full weight of our sin on his shoulders here in verse 34. And he died, verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. It's a short sentence. It it seemingly is passed over, but I want you to note that that is an uncommon death. Crucifixion was designed to prolong death as long as possible. As much as two days. Or more. Christ dies in six hours. Crucifixion was designed to suffocate you. You had no air. And what does he do? He cries out. You don't cry out at crucifixion. You can't cry out at crucifixion. And what this points to is that Christ was in complete control of his faculties and laid down his life willingly, not under compulsion. He wasn't forced to die. He gave his life. John 10, 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus gave his life for sinners. It was not taken. Let's not skip over 37. And 38 is almost another one of those verses that Jesus insert truth and he doesn't even comment on the 
the wonder and implications of this. Look at uh, verse 38. Alistair Begg describes this as an incident of divine vandalism. The curtain is torn from top to bottom. It's not any curtain. It's not something that's hanging in the foyer. It was as much as 80 feet tall. There's some thought that it might have been as thick as a man's hand. Not this way, this way. Four inches thick. We would rip from the bottom to the top. It's ripped from top to bottom. God tore this veil. What's the veil? The veil is symbolizing the separation between man and God. Only the priest could go in. And yet here is God declaring to all the world that we have access through Christ. This is what flies in the face of our friends who follow Catholicism. You don't need a priest to hear your sin. Christ is the one who took it all. Again, just like the darkness, an immediate physical manifestation of a spiritual reality, that in Christ we have access to God. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Mark, quote, What did the miraculous rending of the veil mean? It taught the abolition and termination of the whole Jewish law of ceremonies. It taught that the way into the holiest of all, to the presence of God, was now thrown open to all mankind by Christ's death. Hebrews 9.8 It taught that Gentiles as well as Jews might now draw near to God with boldness through Jesus the one high priest and that all barriers between man and God were forever cast down. Close quote. Hebrews says it best, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, meaning he's fully human. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, fully God. Let us then, let us now, today, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. That we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. All Mark's arguing for is that Christ lovingly gave his life, laid down his life for sinners. He's just presenting the facts. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let's look at point number two. The varied reactions to the crucifixion. And now we're going to sort of fill in the gaps of the story. We'll look at all the people that are sort of surrounding the cross and what's going on. So we have verse 26 through 32 and 35 and 36 and 39 and 47. I just want to note four, four different reactions to the crucifixion. And the first one is mocking. If you just look with me at verse 26, it starts with Pilate who has got this inscription hanging above the cross. It says the king of the Jews. And if you look in the the gospel of John chapter 19, uh, Pilate sort of sticks it to the Jews. He writes the king of the Jews and they come to him and say, no, 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 no. Let's change that. Let's make it. He said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate's mocking in a way and said, this is your king. This is your king, really, on the cross, dying through the power of Rome? Ha. Huh. You also see the robbers, 27 and 32. 
Christ was exchanged for a robber. Barabbas now hung with robbers right and left. They're reviling him. They're mocking him. You see these passerbys, verse 29, crucifixion was probably a, a bit more of a, of a social event. If you just watch the, the old movies, Robin Hood or whatever else, and you know, somebody's gonna get hung and kind of everybody turns out to watch. Verse 29, a bunch of people walking by, deriding him, wagging their heads. You who would destroy the temple, mocking him, and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Chief priests, scribes, verse 32, their day has finally come in their mind. We've finally destroyed him since chapter 3 of Mark. You see them there. He saved others. He cannot him save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And when I read that, the, the only thing that ran through my head is a bunch of kids on a playground. Na, 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 na. You sing song. Mocking him, taunting him like little school kids. In John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down, meaning his life of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my problem, the, from my father. The ability that these scribes and Pharisees are mocking Christ, you can't even come down. It wasn't a physical problem. He could call 10,000 legions of angels. He could just come down off the cross. It's not a physical problem here. It was a lovely problem. It was a loving problem. A loveliness, a lovingness to his father and a lovingness toward us. The fact that verse 31 he saved others. He cannot save this, cannot, cannot save himself. The wonder of, of it all is that he saved others because he didn't save himself. That's the reverse. They want, you can't even save yourself because he was saving others. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And notice what they say. You come down, we'll see, we'll believe. I don't know how often you've heard it, but I've heard it a few times. You know, if if God would just do a miracle, like I can really see it, I'll believe. No, you won't. Because that's what's happening here. He does come down off the cross. He is resurrected. They do have witnesses. They do see. They observe him again teaching. They don't believe. Seeing is not believing. Believing is where you get sight. It comes by faith. Not by physical manifestation. It's a moral problem that we have here. If it was just a physical problem, as if I could just see God work and I come to him, great, we'd all be saved. But it's not a physical problem, it's a moral problem. It's the fact that we're dead in our sin. And it's only overcome by the gift of faith from God to believe in the Son of God dying in our place as sinners. They mock him. Second reaction is they're interested but misfocused. Look at verse 35 and 36. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some bystanders are there. And they grab this sponge with sour wine. Christ does take that. It was sort of a, a nourishing drink, a Gatorade, so to speak. You kind of quench your thirst. But notice what they say. Behold, he's calling Elijah. Wait, 
let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Elijah at that time was sort of this mystical, superstitious patron saint of suffering. And, and you notice these people are so focused, misfocused, on what they think is going on. They, they, they miss who's actually on the cross. And the clearest modern day example that I could, I could think of that would reflect these misfocused people are people that look and act just like us sitting in pews all across America this morning. If you just, it, it, they could hear a sermon from Mark 15, 21 through 47, and they start thinking, oh, you know, but, but how really did it happen? Is it, oh, but did you hear about that book that describes some of the way that the Jews thought about this. Or have you thought about this or that? And you sort of want to stop them and say, you do want to stop them. I want to stop them and say, but have you recognized who was on the cross? It was the Son of God. It's not just some other guy. Have you, have you beheld that he's hanging there for you? Have you looked at the tomb lately and noted that it's empty? And no, all they want to do is get caught up and obscure this and obscure that. And what about this myth? And what about that possibility? And you want to go, do you recognize? You're misfocused. You're interested. I get it. I'm glad you're interested, but you're misfocused. In fact, as a, as a pastor, one of my constant thoughts for everyone in the pew this morning, and I'll think of this about you this week. Is, does that person believe in Jesus? Or are they converted? Or are they regenerated? Have they been saved? And there's an eternal difference between believing in Jesus and being converted. There's a ton of people who believe in Jesus. Ask anybody on the street this week. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. What gives? Believing in Jesus doesn't do it. Are you converted? Are you regenerated? And some might find that question offensive. How dare you question whether or not I'm converted? How dare you? And yet the ramifications of not thinking about that are potentially eternal. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, what in the world is this guy talking about? Conversion and believing in Jesus and there's a different. Well, I'd submit to you one of two things are happening. Either one, I am doing a horrible job this morning of communication and I'd vote for that. Or number two, you may not be converted. And so I'm going to plead with you that as I stand at those double doors in the back of this sanctuary, do not, please, do not. If you're confused about what I'm saying, do not leave until I get a chance to either help you understand what I was saying or help you walk through what it means to be converted. Third, response to what's happening around the cross here is there's an acknowledgement of divinity. Verse 39. Surely this man was the Son of God. This centurion acknowledging that this was no ordinary man that was on that cross. This was the God-man, the Son of God, anticipating for us the gospel going forth to Gentiles. Fourthly, 
verse 40 and 43 and really through 47, you have the response of humble, courageous followers and servants. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joas and Salome, Joseph of Arimathea, respected member of the council. These men and women who courageously followed Christ all the way to the cross and after. It's helpful for me at times when I look at these passages to sort of try to insert myself between the lines. The white space between the black letters and ask, try to kind of get in and get the feeling. I don't know about you, but my children can ask PhD level questions as I tuck them into bed at night. Last night, 9, 30, 10 o'clock, as I approached my three-and-a-half-year-old son, the question was, will you buy me a skateboard? I didn't even know what he knew what a skateboard was. The thoughts of, Daddy, why did God put the tree in the garden that they could eat from? Kids ask phenomenal questions. So let's put ourselves in the place of a small Jewish boy at the end of that night. As his father is tucking him into bed, he's kissing him on the forehead, that little boy looks up at dad and says, we've seen people killed at Golgotha. This one was different. Why did he yell? Dad, dad, what about that curtain? What are they going to do with the curtain? Why did it get dark for three hours today? And any dad worth his salt knows that the best answer is, go to sleep, we'll talk about it in the morning. Hoping they forget. And yet, he probably missed the most important question to ask. The question you have to ask this morning. The question that Mark says you have to ask and I have to ask this morning. And that question is, so what? So what that all these things happen? So what's going to change? What am I going to do about what happened that day? Have you witnessed the results of Christ's death in your life? We've seen witnesses, centurion and women and respected members of the council and others. Are you a mocker? Like some of those. Are you misfocused like some of those? Are you acknowledging his divinity like some? Or are you an obedient follower? What are you going to do with this information this morning? Let's begin to close now by asking. How should we respond? Point number three. To Christ's death and burial. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible has told us so. This morning, we've been given the facts. What are you going to say about them? What do you say about the facts? I'm asking, what do you say about these facts? You've heard the witnesses. What's your viewpoint? You can't just have a neutral one this morning. You're sitting here listening to me. What's your viewpoint? What are you going to do about it? See, the death of Jesus Christ to save sinners is not plan B. It was plan A from the very beginning of time. This wasn't some mistake that we have witnessed this morning. This wasn't some oops in the court system. He came to save. He came to die. 
He didn't come to live. He didn't come to sit on some earthly Jewish throne. And so when one asks even the question this morning, why did he have to die? Or why is he hanging on the cross? To ask those questions may reveal that we're looking at Christ all the wrong way. Because the Bible says that's what he was supposed to do and why he came. Greg Gilbert in his little book, What is the Gospel, says it well. Quote, I should have been punished, not him. Yet he took my place. He died for me. They were my transgressions, but his wounds. My iniquities, but his chastisement. My sin, his sorrow. His punishment brought my peace. His stripes won my healing. His grief, my joy. His death, my life. Close quote. C.S. Lewis put it another way. Either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Which one? You have to make that decision. If he's Lord, then repent of your sin and by faith follow him in obedience. If you've not done so. And doing so takes you from a citizen of death and makes you a citizen of life. Life eternal. So when we think about the crucifixion, we think about the death of Christ, we think about people dying, death is not a pleasant thought for anyone. No one, no one wakes up in the morning and wants to think about these things. But do you realize, though, that there is hope after death for bad people? Good people don't go to heaven. Only bad people go to heaven. Only liars, only murderers, only robbers, only rebels go to heaven. That's the only ones in there. You're not going to show up and say, hey, you're perfect like I am. It's great to meet you. No. Just like the thief on the cross, you can have hope after death through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And you get a citizenship, the citizenship of life, the the qualification of kingdom citizens. We don't have time, but if you looked at your Bible, you'll see that there's this mention of kingdom or king at least three times mentioned in our passage. And the qualification of the kingdom citizen is, is not physical birth. It's not nationality, it's not race, it's not ethnicity, it's not background, it's not economic demographic. It's not whether you've got past good deeds or past bad deeds. It's not whether or not you've had a good family upbringing or a bad family upbringing. It's not whether or not you sinned last night or didn't. It's not whether or not you have a good knowledge of the Bible and can take me around the Bible. It's not whether or not you've attended church all of your life or even this morning. It's not whether or not you can articulate great theological truths as wonderful as those might be. The prerequisite for the kingdom, the qualification for the kingdom is only believing upon Jesus. That's it. There's nothing else. The qualification is through allegiance, obedience and loyalty. Allegiance coming through being born again by the divine act of God giving you spiritual life. Spiritual life, the rebirth coming through the shed blood of Jesus. Because it's only through Jesus and his death that sinners can be saved. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. I don't know of anyone who has had leukemia. Strike that, I know one. One little boy who's had leukemia, and if you've known someone who's had leukemia, you know one of the treatments, one of the only potential treatments to bring life to them is that they have to have a bone marrow transplant. With leukemia, you're going to go through um, all sorts of drugs, and what it's doing is it's killing you. That's what it's designed to do. Because in that bone marrow that produces blood in your body, it's contaminated by disease. And so the only way to live is to kill you and have a transplant of someone else's blood to the point that if you take your blood sample as someone who has beaten leukemia, the DNA is not yours. It's whomever donated the blood marrow. It's whoever donated the bone marrow. This is exactly what happens. So that when you prick a person who's come under the shed blood of Jesus Christ, they don't bleed Cody. They bleed Christ. So if you prick you this morning spiritually, what do you bleed? Christ or you? He isn't interested in half of you. He isn't interested in some of you. He takes all of you and he gives you all of himself. Great hymn of the faith. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. What makes a man stand there and take it, as we talked about last week, the love of Christ. The love of God for sinners. Christ lovingly laying down his life to save Sinners, you've heard the facts. Will you believe it? Will you obey it? Will you rejoice in it this morning? I would invite you next week, come. Because all that we've talked about this morning is useless. Unless he rose from the dead. And we will look at that next week. And realize yet again that what we have described here is truth. And we have all hope in it because of the resurrection of Christ coming next week. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a joy it is to know that for the believer in Jesus Christ, our full assurance is the blood of Christ. That Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. Sin has washed us clean, washed us white as snow. And so that when you look upon us now as believers in Jesus Christ, you do not see my sin, but the perfect blood of Christ. We ask, Father, that you would grow our understanding of this, that we would be more faithful in obedience to the ramifications of the blood of Christ for me. Father, if there is someone here that is confused by what I've said, or they've recognized that they have never repented of their sin, And by faith receive the shed blood of Jesus Christ for them to pay for their sin. That you would open their eyes and they would come to Christ in saving faith this morning. We ask this not for them, for us, but for your glory. That we might see yet again another sinner, another bad person. Get life. Because of the life of Christ given for us. 
Father, we thank you for the cross. We sing hallelujah for the cross even now. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand.